Hello, everybody. Welcome to a special live episode of Humanities Plus, a digital and public humanities podcast produced by Phoenix Studios out of the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I am your host, Rachel Scray, a UWGB senior majoring in history and digital and public humanities with a minor in arts management. And today I'm joined with guest host Preston Fisher, a junior majoring in history and minoring in English. Today, Humanities Plus is recording live at the wonderful Widener Center in Studio One for the UW-Green Bay Common Cause Conference. Today's conference is focused on human rights and connects to the 71st anniversary of the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights on December 10th, 1948. I want to thank you all for being here today. And for those of you who are not here, we hope you can feel the energy of the event from whatever platform you listen to your podcast on. I encourage those of you who are here today to all participate by putting your hands together for humanities guest, Dr. Eric Morgan, Associate Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies and History. That uh, seems unnecessary, but uh, thank you, Rachel and Preston, for having me. It's awesome to be here. Today, we're going to talk about the New York Times controversial 1619 project. Our goal with this episode is to consider the project's ability to provoke a national conversation about the legacy of slavery and its centrality to the American narrative, as well as the potentials and benefits of rethinking that narrative. So let's dig in. Uh, in August of 2019, the New York Times launched the 1619 Project. Quoting directly from the site, the project is a major initiative from the New York Times observing the 400th anniversary of the beginning of American slavery. It aims to reframe the country's history, understanding the date 1619 as our true founding, and placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. On the front page of the site, the project states its starting narrative. In August of 1619, a ship carrying more than 20 enslaved Africans landed near Point Comfort, a coastal point in the English colony of Virginia, and were sold to the colonists. This moment marks the beginning of America, and the country that would follow would not have been built if it was not for those sold into slavery starting on August 1619. Nicole Hannah-Jones, founder of the 1619 Project, stated, The project is first and foremost an invitation to reframe how the country discusses the role and history of its black citizens, and I hope to reframe the way we see ourselves in America. Dr. Morgan, in response to Hannah-Jones' call, what do you think is the importance of revisiting and rethinking our hysterical narratives, similar, similar to how the 1619 Project reframes the founding and identity of America? So it's always important for us to you know, revisit our past. Um, I think for those in the historical community, this is something we already know because it's our training. But um, you know, the past is, is ever-changing. It's ever in motion. Um, because we find new sources, we um, learn how to look at those sources in the past in different ways, through different lenses, I would say. Um, and we're influenced by the events you know, around us. Um, our, our present actually does inform our past. Um, the, the political issues, the social movements of our times um, have an influence on how we think about um, our collective past. And so without question, the 1619 Project comes out of a, um, a desire to bring more social justice and equality to peoples of color in the United States. There's no doubt about it, that it comes out of you know, the progressive movement in the United States right now, and it's coming at a very specific time and place. Um, so it is important for us to revisit the past. I think a lot of um, you know, your, your 
perhaps normal American thinks that the past is uh, set in stone, right? That it doesn't change. Um, this thing happened on this date, and that's it. It's you know like um, written in stone, coming out of uh, out, out of uh, um, some omniscient um, <laughs> person's hand. But that's not the case. Um, we we reevaluate sources. We reevaluate narratives. Historians argue and debate, um, and y y there will never be a final word on slavery, for example, or the importance of slavery. Um, although Nicole Hannah-Jones might want to think that's the case, but that's actually not true. We'll be debating the, the importance of slavery um, in the American narrative forever. So this project has also sparked large conversations and some controversies surrounding the education system in America. To quote Nikita Stewart, author and contributor of the project, unlike math and reading, states are not required to meet academic content standards for teaching social studies and United States history. That means there is no consensus on the curriculum around slavery, no uniform recommendation to explain an institution that was debated in the crafting of the Constitution and that has influenced nearly every aspect of American society since, end quote. One example of the project's influence and education can be found in the case of the Chicago Public Schools, which have chosen to teach in all city high schools the 1619 Project. Dr. Morgan, how may the 1619 Project affect the way in which history is taught? Do you think projects like this have the potential to inspire changes in standards to social studies in U.S. curriculum? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say that uh, the New York Times' goal in creating the 1619 Project was for it to become part of, of curriculum, probably at the, the, the secondary level in high schools. Um, and it has a huge potential uh, to affect the way that history is taught, both positive and negative. And I think we'll get to that when we uh, talk about the overall response and controversies. Um, but I mean, what the project tries to do is to um, centralize the place of slavery in the kind of grand narrative of United States history, um, rather than having it as something that is less important, I think, that um, Nicole Hannah-Jones would probably say um, that the United States, um, its, its essential being, um, she would say, and as the 1619 Project says, is born out of slavery. It's, it's this original sin that the country um, was created upon. I mean, I think she says that, you know, the Declaration of, of Independence is both an, an idea as well as a lie, um, very powerful statement. Um, but the idea, perhaps, is to um, recenter our kind of attention on this, you know, curious institution, um, which which means that we spend more time, perhaps, thinking about, um, you know, how slavery permeated throughout American society in its early um, in its early years. But also, the 1619 Project is also drawing direct connections to our modern world, right? Uh, whether it's mass incarnation incarceration, I should say, mass incarceration, um, whether it's sugar in our diets, that was an interesting one to read about, whether it's traffic jams um, due to urban sprawl, but trying to make these direct connections um, between this institution um, that began here in 1619 and the, the state of the country today, particularly um, the, the world within uh, African Americans live. So yeah, it has massive potential to, um, to influence how a generation 
of uh, young Americans think about uh, and care about the past without question. Now the scope of this project has already reached and influenced so many people and a lot of the feedback has been really positive. Uh, like we mentioned earlier about the Chicago Public Schools uh, and their interest in teaching the project. So what would you say has been the overall response to this project and why do you think it is that there might be some controversy surrounding it? So this is a difficult question to answer since the overall response has been mixed. Um, many uh, observers and critics think it's a, a wonderful project um, that is forcing Americans to confront um, this institution that without question was a, a critical component of who the country was. Um, but on the other hand, however, there are critics, um, both political critics, but as well as uh, professional historians, um, who feel that the project is deeply flawed, um, that it contains a biased view of the, of the story of slavery in the United States and um, focuses too much on the centrality of slavery um, to, our, to our narrative. Um, you have uh, very prominent historians, people like James McPherson, Gordon Wood, Victoria Bynum, um, who make excellent points that this is simply, a, uh, or I should say, a far too simplistic portrayal of slavery. Um, that, uh, you know, the past is a complex place, it's ever-changing, and to say that, um, you know, for example, that um, uh, it was only blacks that allowed democracy to finally flourish in the United States, I'm paraphrasing, um, but that's an, a gross oversimplification. Um, there were white Americans who had been opposed to slavery from the very beginning, uh, the Quakers and, and so many others, um, and so I think um, if you do look at this project, perhaps objectively, I would say it does have a kind of Manichaean um, worldview, uh, basically that, you know, it's good and evil and that the, the story is not a complex one. Um, and I think, you know, prominent historians who, you know, have spent their lives researching and writing on this, uh, on this field, on this time period, period, this era, would say that it's um, perhaps even dangerous um, because it simplifies something that um, shouldn't be simplified. Um, but as I said, the, the response has been also very positive um, because it uh, has brought to the, um, the forefront an issue that you know, many Americans are uncomfortable with, and I would say even um, not particularly knowledgeable about. And so to do that, of course, um, is, uh, is, is without question a credit to the project. Um, and it also does things, and I think we're gonna talk about this uh, in a moment. Um, it brings in different modes of, of, uh, of, uh, of narrative, right? Uh, whether it's nonfiction essays, whether it's poetry, whether it's fiction, uh, whether it's photography um, and historical images, you have um, a kind of truly interdisciplinary uh, approach to the topic. Um, but again, uh, critics, um, again, from kind of people on the political right, um, but also on the uh, his historical uh, spectrum as well, do feel that it, it, it's, a, it's a biased portrayal. And um, I think both James McPherson and, and Gordon Wood and Victoria Bynum, um, they were all just shocked when they opened up the New York Times uh, when it appeared. They had not been consulted as, you know, some of the uh, most prolific authors on, on slavery. 
um, and uh, early American history. And so uh, the question actually becomes, well, you know, where did the historical research come from? It's not exactly entirely clear. So um, I think this is a project that is very much a project of our times, the political times that we live in. Um, and um, so I think that means the response has been kind of on both sides of the spectrum, both glowing and, and very, very critical. Now, nearly every piece in this project is anchored by a contemporary image, a constant reminder that even though slavery was formally abolished more than 150 years ago, its legacy still does remain today. This project includes so many different modes of media. It has articles, uh, podcasts, even poetry, and each has their own way of balancing the events of the past with modern day implications. So Dr. Morgan, how do these different modes of media help deliver and also enhance the message of the project? Well, I think anytime that you can um, expand a historical topic um, in terms of the kind of media that is employed um, to your average reader, listener, viewer, whatever, that's important, right? Most of us are not trained, of course, as historians, and so to be able to, um, you know, I don't want to necessarily say, necessarily say simplify, but to make accessible the past, that's incredibly important. Um, and so if you can um, be exposed to not only you know journalistic essays and most of the writers the, you know these are these are not trained historians these are for the most part journalists but there are there are a couple of academics um, but if you can be introduced to this topic from a variety of 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 of, of directions I think it helps um, you know to bring that story alive whether it's um, poetry whether it is these photographs whether it's thinking about the um, the importance of of black music um, and how that has played such an important role in our modern understanding of freedom, um, whether it is uh, historical photos or contemporary photos. What those things do is it allows the, uh, the listener, the viewer, the reader to uh, better imagine uh, the lives of these people that um, we're, we're trying to empathize with. I mean, to me, history, uh, the study of history, I should say, is really about empathy. Um, I mean, I think it's impossible to truly ever know another person. I was actually talking to a friend about this the other day, and we got in an argument. She said, you know, you can get to know somebody. And I'm like, well, you know, even when you're talking to your best friend or your partner, like everything's being filtered, right? Um, they can't get inside your mind. And that's the same thing with the past, right? We can never truly know uh, what an experience of another individual is like from the past. Um, but the, the, the purpose of all this is to better empathize, right? And to become uh, a better human being, which will hopefully help us to, you know, be better people today and empathize with people who are different than us and with, with different experiences. So I think all of these different, you know, mediums allow you just more tools or resources in, in learning how to empathize. And again, for me, that's what the study of the past is. It's, it's about um, trying to understand people who aren't like you in a way to better understand who you are and, who the, and what the world around you is. And I think, you know, photographs, videos, poetry, essays, all those things help to do that. So what can we do with the knowledge gained from this project uh, and how can we use it to help us go forward feeling empowered uh, rather than overwhelmed by the scale of the project and the message that it carries? This is a, this is a, this is a challenging question. Um, 
But uh, you know, I think I think there's several things that we can take away from the project. Um, first and foremost is that we need to, uh, as a society, um, pay attention to our past. And I think that's the most important thing that the 1619 Project and the New York Times Magazine has done here, is that um, even if you disagree, and I happen to disagree with a lot of um, uh, of the kind of argument that's been put forth in this project, but even if you disagree with it, it creates a conversation. Um, and you know, as a historian, I want people to be thinking about and interacting with the past. So I think. That is a good thing. Um, you know, this is going to be part of curriculums across the United States, for good or ill. Um, it'll, you know, be up to the, you know, high school social studies teachers on how nuanced they want to make it. Um, and I would also say, though, just a, you know, a word of caution in that, um, you know, the New York Times is uh, 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 one of the oldest, you know, running publications in the United States. Um, it has a very strong reputation for 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 great investigative journalism. And I think the criticisms, particularly from the historical community, um, the historians I talked about were just a few, I think that's important to, to realize. Um, what's kind of ironic is that, um, you know, with the 1619 Project, we see that there is no grand narrative, right, because they're trying to change the narrative, but at the same time, it's almost saying, you know, this then is the narrative. And so I think there's kind of a paradox or conundrum there. Um, so I would also say that uh, we do have to take projects like this um, seriously in, um, you know, whether or not they're, they're engaging with historical research. Are they engaging with the profession? Are they being, um, you know, as unbiased as possible if they're presenting themselves to be that way? Um, we all have bias, even historians, but we, we, we try to, of course, you know, analyze the past as, as unbiased as we can. Um, so I think that's, that's the second component of what to, to take away from this project is, um, you know, how well does this project actually represent the history that it's trying to uh, present? And as far as you know, being empowered uh, rather than overwhelmed, um, I don't think there's much to be overwhelmed about other than um, if it's a topic that makes you uh, uncomfortable. I think you know, in, in our history classrooms here at UWGB, we encourage uh, debate, disagreements, different viewpoints, um, you know, as, as long as it's backed by the use of evidence and not just, you know, pure, pure opinion. And so um, I think that's something to be empowered about, right? If this can create a national dialogue on the place of slavery um, in our past and in our present, I think that's awesome. Uh, I think that's a very, very good thing. Again, I, I, I don't agree with, with many of the um, kind of arguments set forth, but I think a project like this, coming from a reputable uh, publication like the New York Times, you know, is going to be read by millions of people, and it's going to be in schools, and it's going to be something that people think about. So um, I think that should empower us to continue to delve deeper into our, our shared experiences, our shared past, whether or not they're uncomfortable topics or not. I think that's a great thing. Um, we should be talking about our past, uh, whether um, it's, it's happy or, or gloomy. 
Great, thank you. Um, we do have a little bit of time left, so I'd actually like to open up that last question to all of you if you would have any um, answers or input that you would like to include. I'll re-ask the question. Um, so what do we do with the knowledge that we gain from this project, if any of you have um, had the opportunity to look through the New York Times or from what you've learned from uh, our discussion today? Hello, I'm David Velker. I'm a pr professor of humanities and histories here. History? You're going to start doing stand-up now, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, new career, moving on. Um, <laughs> and first, thank you all for these wonderful questions and insights about the 1619 project. And, you know, one thing I take from the project um, is that challenge to really reconsider our maybe what you would call the grand narrative, like what is the larger narrative of United States history that we have uh, internalized? And I don't actually think there is one narrative that all Americans have internalized. There's a lot of different narratives out there, and it's important to recognize those narratives come from different perspectives. Um, the fact that it's from a different perspective doesn't necessarily mean that it's biased. I mean, I think what we're looking for there is some kind of fairness in evaluating the evidence to get a picture that's complex and that brings in as many different perspectives as we can. And it may be that this particular perspective goes too far in one direction, but then that, just that conversation about, okay, what do we do with, with these views, I think is incredibly valuable. Um, I think most historians would say we've never run into an interpretation that we agreed with 100%. And, and so it really is an ongoing dialogue. And certainly in my, my classroom, I, I try to support students in engaging in that dialogue. Um, so, you know, coming back to that central theme of um, the importance of 1619, is this, is this the true founding of the United States? Um, I, you know, I think that's still an open question. I'm ambivalent about that because I think there are, um, you know, it's probably hard to find the one true founding of the, of the United States. And in fact, in, in 1619, there wasn't a person alive who could have imagined the continental empire that, that the United States would, would become. I mean, it, was just, it just wasn't even conceivable at that point. Um, so I would say it's... Um, if you want to frame it that way, it's not maybe not the best way to frame the question, but it, where, what it comes down to is how do we incorporate 1619 and the, the creation of this institution of slavery in North America? How do we understand that for our identity as a nation? What does that mean? So not only collectively, but then also individually. How do we understand ourselves today? Um, as you know, members of a nation or a larger community where this is such a key part of the history. And you know, what's great about this project is it makes it really hard to ignore or to sideline um, the, the institution of slavery in the history of the United States. It really does bring it into the spotlight. So we can't just say, well, slavery was the exception to, to the rule um, where we can just see otherwise a, a great story about freedom. Uh, and so I think it's really valuable in that regard. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I've added a whole lot here. Um, I just, um, you know, I, I think it's worth looking at, and it's an important ongoing discussion. So, and I, again, I'm just really grateful for your insightful questions and comments. Thanks. Thank you yeah, thank you. 
Hi, uh, and I second everything that David just said. Thank you for being here. Uh, I'm Caroline Boswell. I'm also an associate professor of history and humanities, or histories. I liked that. Associate professor of histories is actually way better. <laughs> um, so I have a question that kind of it leads into something that you said, Eric, though. I want to open it up to anyone to answer. Um, so you had said that this is very much a product of these times. And I'm wondering if you could unpack that for us a bit. I mean, I think I, I, think I have some idea of what you meant by that. Um, but I'm curious what you think, um, why you think it's this moment, whether you think it's political, social, economic, all those things together like what is it about this moment as you had suggested it's very much a product of this moment could you unpack that for us sure <laughs> briefly I guess um, <laughs> it's a lot to unpack well um, you know politically socially um, in, in terms of you know economics in the United States over the past probably decade um, at least amongst you know the the progressive wing of American politics, there has been a very strong focus on the place of minorities in society and um, the role of identity, right? Um, whether it is about um, African Americans, whether it's about you know uh, about gender, and so I think um, what that kind of shift has done is it makes us want to reevaluate our past. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to use a, a very quick analogy um, from my field, U.S. foreign relations. So in the 1960s and the 1970s, uh, the United States was engaged in a foreign misadventure, the Vietnam War. And within my field, um, historians who were studying U.S. foreign policy, the adventure or misadventure in Vietnam had a huge influence on the writing of um, U.S. foreign policy history. And I don't mean you know, the writing of the history of the Vietnam War. It was more about, well, what were the motivations for the United States to expand its, as David said, continental empire around the world to Cuba, the Philippines, elsewhere? And due to the backlash against the war, due to the protests against the war, um, it you know, created an entirely new school of thought um, that basically, you know, said that, um, you know, the, the United States was an empire um, in, in everything but name. So that's just one example um, within, you know, the, f the field of history itself where, you know, the times we live in very much influence the kind of, I think I would just say the questions we ask about the past, right? Um, same thing in the 1960s and 1970s with social and cultural history, right? There's no, uh, there's not a disconnect. There's a strong connection between, um, you know, uh, the, the focus on the less powerful or the quote unquote bottom up history, you know, due to the social upheavals that are happening um, in in the 1960s and the 1970s, not just in the United States and Western Europe, but really everywhere, right? Even in the you know former colonies. So just from my perspective, I would say the 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 it, the in increasing feeling of, you know, isolation or lack of identity or lack of buy-in to uh, the United States and what it claims to be, you know, paraphrasing people like ta Coates or whatnot, um, I think that has led many people to want to understand the past and perhaps re-centralize these, these moments that help to create who they are. So I guess that's what I mean by, um, you know, our times influencing um, the questions we ask about the past.
Well, that does bring us to the end of our episode. Now, I want to thank you, uh, Professor Volker and Professor Boswell, for uh, participating in today's episode. And a special thank you to Dr. Morgan for being here today and for the valuable discussion that we had. And for my guest host, Preston Fisher, for joining me in my first Humanities Plus live experience. A uh, round of applause for everyone who did today. Thank you. Humanities Plus is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin and production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek. Our graphic designer is Kim Bulis. Special thanks to the organizers of Common Cause and to the Widener Center for hosting this event. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also uh, head over to our website, UW wgb.edu slash podcast to check out our past episodes of all this and all, all of our other shows. I am your host, Rachel Scray, and, and I'm Preston Fisher. Thank you for listening.